Let me tell you, I've been enjoying this series just as much as anybody, just because I am the one that gets to stand on stage and hold a microphone. Like these sermons, these messages, these worship times are just as much for me as they are for anybody else. And one of the things that I love about the greatest stories never told is just getting us to open up parts of our Bible that we don't typically study, get to really look into the lives of some random characters. And the character we're going to talk about today is a young king named Josiah who took the throne at eight years old. Now, if you've ever like raised kids or served with kids, or obviously you were a kid yourself, I don't know how you would have handled that kind of power and authority as an eight-year-old. So at one of the many camps that we've had this summer, I decided to send our camera crew around and ask some elementary age kids, what would you do if you were king or queen of your own country? I think you'll enjoy some of their responses. Check this out. Jack, if you were a king, what are some of the laws that you would create? Um, you can do anything you want, but not rob banks. Abby, if you were the queen of a country, what are some of the laws you would make? No smoking. Bella, if you were the queen of your own country, what are some of the laws that you would make? That you would have to eat candy every day for dessert. Um, that you would have, that there would be no boys allowed. So, would I be allowed there or not? No. Dang. Kyler, if you were a king of your own country, what would you do? One, one billion dollars. Maddie, if you were the queen of your own kingdom, what are some of the laws that you would have? Never go to school. Easton, if you were the king of your own country, what are some of the laws that you would make? Uh, I don't know. No violence or something? Easton, what would the name of your country be? Easton Mania. Easton Mania. All right, Chrissy. If you are a queen of your own country, what are some of the laws that you would have? There could only be one party every year. What kind of party would it be? Like a Christmas party, because if my birthday was on Christmas, which it is. Leah, if you were the queen of your own country, what are some of the laws that you would have? Everyone has to eat ice cream. Leah, what would the name of your country be? Ice cream. Leah, what would the national animal of ice cream be? A cat that's made of ice cream. Leah, why wouldn't your national animal be a cow? Because you know cows produce the milk for ice cream. Um, I don't know. I just don't want cows to be the national people. No one thinks that they want a cow to be the sign of a country. <laughs> that's great, right? Let's all stand and say the National Pledge of Allegiance to ice cream. <laughs> Man, that's great. I don't know about you. I don't think I would be ready for that kind of power as an eight-year-old, but Josiah was actually a really good king. And, and before we dive into his story, I, I want to go into his backstory a little bit. How did an eight-year-old become king of a nation? Like, how does that happen? This wasn't like a small nation. This is a massive nation with an, under, an army of hundreds of thousands of people. There was war all around. This is some big shoes to fill. So let's, let's kind of get a little bit of the backdrop of history before we dive in to 2 Kings and hear Josiah's story. So you've got God's chosen people, the Israelites. He gave them a promise that he would multiply Abraham's descendants, the original patriarch of God's people. So he gave them this promised land. Then there was a famine. They escaped to Egypt. They were taken care of in Egypt for a while. Then the Egypts didn't like how the Israelites were growing and put them into uh, slavery, forced labor for 400 years. 
Then God raised up Moses and liberated them from the tyranny of Egypt. Part of the Red Sea, they walked across on dry land. Probably heard this story before. Wandered in the wilderness. They got their Ten Commandments up on top of a mountain. And then God brings them into the promised land, raises up leaders called judges that kind of help mediate and, and discern God's will for the people. But God's people looked around and saw the other people and said, we want to be like them. Why can't we have a king? And God didn't want them or design them to have a king because I think God knows that ultimate authority corrupts the hearts of men and women. But God said, all right, fine, you want it, you got it. Raised up kings. Things didn't go very well with the first king, a guy named King Saul. He got very intimidated by a young man named David. David is a young man who with a slingshot killed the giant Goliath. David became king and led the nation of Israel into a short golden era. His son Solomon took it up a notch. They were making a lot of money, had a lot of money in the treasury. Things were going really well with them. They would win all of their battles. And then Solomon has a son, and that son decides to become somewhat of a tyrant. He raises the taxes, doesn't listen to anybody, dismisses all of the elders, and brings all of his young buddies around and basically has like a frat house running the country. Nobody's surprised when civil war breaks out, and then God's chosen people are divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom. They kept the name Israel and took ten of the twelve tribes, and then you had the southern kingdom, which was two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. The southern kingdom was known as the kingdom of Judah, and they were often at war with the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, the other ten tribes. Now, the kingdom of Israel quickly rebelled against the Lord, and, 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 and things didn't go well for them. They didn't have godly kings, and so they would lose their battles, and God just wasn't fighting for them or fighting with them very often. So Israel kind of gets sent into exile. The Assyrians and all these other uh, nations and clans uh, enslaved them. And then you've got the nation of Judah, of which Josiah would eventually become king. And it was almost every other king would kind of derail and start getting curious about the other gods that were being represented by false idols in that Mesopotamian Middle Eastern era. So you have father, son, father, son from the line of David, the house of Judah, becomes kings. You got some good kings, you got bad kings. And what was interesting is anytime you would have a king that would follow God and lead the people to follow God, things would go well for the nation. Well, you get father, son, father, son, father, son to a king named Manasseh. He is the father of Josiah. He's not a godly king. He leads them to worship other gods and builds temples and shrines and idols and statues to all of the other religions that were represented there in ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Israel. And things aren't going well for the country. They're losing some of their battles. They're not flourishing with their economics. And so Manasseh's own cabinet turns against them, has them assassinated, and then they turn the kingship over to the eight-year-old king, Josiah. That's how he becomes king. He's got a mom and priest who are kind of acting as stepdads or foster dads to help raise him. Fortunately for Asa, the priests that helped raise this young boy were priests that followed God, Yahweh, the one true God. And as he is being raised up in the ways of the Lord, he realizes, man, all these temples that are here, man, we're missing the one true God. And, and it breaks his heart that his people are missing out on all that God has for them. 
so Josiah, he decides to raise up some new, new priests as he's getting older. He's a young man. He's a teenager. And he goes into a season of religious reform where he starts tearing down all of the idols and shrines to the false gods and sends the priest into the original temple, the original Holy of Holies that Solomon, his great, 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 great grandfather had built and decides to say, let's clean this up. Let's, let's restore this as a place of worship and a shining light for God's people. And, and while they're rebuilding the temple, some amazing things happen. Let's open up our Bibles, 2 Kings chapter 23. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, and all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearings all of the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. Now, now don't miss this. The words of the book of the covenant. For a while, under Manasseh, his father's reign, they had lost a major portion of their holy text, the scripture. The, 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 the temple, their church of the day, had just become kind of a place of destruction and pieces of the original scripture that were written by Moses way back hundreds of years before wherever this dynasty ever existed were missing. And while he was rebuilding the temple and repairing the temple and tearing down the false gods' shrines, the priests found a part of the old law. And it broke Josiah's heart because he realized, man, if we have been missing this part of the law, we've been misunderstanding how to follow and please God. And it was those very words of how to love God with everything, as heart, as soul, as mind, as strength, that broke his heart and realized, man, we're living in disobedience. And we've got to do something about it. So verse 3 says, the king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord. To follow the Lord and keep his commandments, statutes, and decrees with all his heart, with all his soul. Thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. This is a significant verse. Because he realized we were existing out of the covenant that they had with God. The covenant that God established all the way back to the original leader, Abraham. And he said, if you love me, if you follow me, I will be with you. This wasn't a contract that you could come out of. This is like a covenant that you, you commit to your wife on your wedding day, to your friends, your family, and God, that I do, I follow you. And divorce isn't an option here. He is realizing they were existing outside of the covenant. And many historians believe that there is one specific part of the scripture that was missing that we could that, that I think gives us a little bit of insight as to why they use this wording with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and all your strength. Over and over again throughout the story of Josiah, it was said that he was the king who loved God and truly followed God with everything that he was, with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his strength. And I think what they're doing there is doing a throwback all the way to the book of Deuteronomy, which was part of the text that was missing under his dad's leadership, but was found... When they begin to rebuild the temple, all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it was this verse that most historians believe was one of the key verses that was lost but then found. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. When Jesus himself was asked 
What's the greatest law? Out of all the Ten Commandments, was there really just a table of contents to the other 600 rules that were given for people, for morals, for, for civil behavior, for, for religious routine and ritual? Out of those 600 and something laws, when Jesus was asked by religious leaders of his time, which one is the most important? He pointed back to this one. And this is also the wording that was used to describe the rule and the reign, the leadership, the character of the eight-year-old king. Someone who loved God with his heart, with his soul, and his strength. Jesus said this is the greatest commandment. If you want to encapsulate the entire scripture into one phrase, it was this commandment. This commandment was a very important part of the ancient Hebrew people. It was a prayer that they would pray almost daily. Hear, O Hear, people, that the Lord our God is one. That Hebrew word here is a word called Shema. And to really understand some of the, the intricacies of this scripture, I started researching online what are some things that we miss when we, when we just kind of gloss over and look at it from an English perspective. Because the original text, when you dig into some of those original Hebrew words, a lot more descriptive and it shines a lot greater light on what he meant to love the Lord your God with all your heart your soul, and your strength. And I want to show you this online resource that kind of helps paint a picture of how crucial and how key the scripture was to the ancient Hebrew people. This is from some guys based out of Portland called The Bible Project, and they've put together a short little animated piece that lets you know how big of a deal this prayer, this commandment would have been in Deuteronomy. So check this out. This is the Shema. For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Now the first word of the Shema is hear or listen, which in Hebrew is pronounced Shema. That's where the prayer gets its name. Now, Shema is a really common word in the Hebrew Bible, and it's obvious why. Hearing is a very universal activity. It's usually connected with the ear, as in Proverbs chapter 20, ears that Shema and eyes that see, the Lord has made them both. Now, that seems basic enough, but if you look at the other ways that Hebrew authors can use the word Shema, they use it to mean more than just let sound waves enter your ear. In Hebrew, Shema can also mean pay attention to or focus on. So when Leah, who wasn't loved by her husband Jacob, she has a son, and she names him Simon, or in Hebrew, Shimon, because, she says, the Lord has shamad, that I am unloved. So Shema means to hear and to pay attention to, and even more. It can also mean responding to what you hear. This is why so many of the cries for help in the book of Psalms begin with a call that God listen. Psalm 27, verse 7. Shema my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful, answer me. So asking God to Shema is at the same time asking God to act, to do something. It's similar to when God asks people to listen. Like when the people of Israel come to Mount Sinai, God says, if you Shema me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Now there's a couple interesting things about this verse in Exodus. In Hebrew, the word Shema is repeated twice in this sentence to give it emphasis. If you Shema Shema, meaning listen closely. But also notice that from God's point of view, listening is basically the same as keeping the covenant. So when God asks the people to Shema, what he means is that they listen and obey. 
And that's the last fascinating thing about Shema. In ancient Hebrew, there is no separate word for obey, meaning to carry out the wishes of someone who knows better than you or is in authority over you. So in the Bible, if you want to say, I will listen and do what you say, you use the single word Shema. In Hebrew, listening and doing are two sides of the same coin. This is why later in Israel's history, when the people were breaking their covenant promises to God, the Hebrew prophets would say things like, they have ears, but they're not listening. The Israelites, of course, could hear just fine, but they weren't actually listening or else they would act differently. And so in the end, listening in the Bible is about giving respect to the one speaking to you and doing what they say. Real listening takes effort and action, and that's the Hebrew word Shema. There we go. So that's a look at the Hebrew word Shema. Hey guys, thanks for, for them, watching. For them, listening and doing were the same thing. Have you ever been in a conversation with your spouse where one of you is maybe scrolling through social media and the other one is talking and they say, are you listening to me? You can hear the sound waves, but you may not be processing the information. I mean, that's church for us sometimes, too, on Sundays, right? You hear what the preacher is saying, but we may delay our actions on what the preacher preaching God's word was telling us to do. Do you understand why this broke Josiah's heart? Because he realized we're not hearing the full words of God, so how can we be fully obedient? If I can't hear everything God has to say, how can I truly live for him because Josiah was, was he was raised by some leaders that desired obedience because they knew obedience is what instigates blessing. Blessing follows obedience. And I think a lot of times we think, I hear the word, I heard a sermon, I listened to a podcast, I came to church, I heard a worship song, and it's nudging me towards something. But I've kind of got to get my life in order first. Or I've got some other things that I've got to do first. And what we end up doing is we have the right intentions. But intentions are not the same thing as obedience. God doesn't look at us and bless us based on our intentions. Delayed obedience is still disobedience. And God can't bless disobedience. So the reason Josiah's heart was broken is because he realized not only... Did we formally turn to false gods, but we haven't even fully become obedient and learned how to love God with our heart and our soul and our strength. And Josiah's legacy is the one king that taught the nation to love God with their heart, their soul, their strength. Matter of fact, if you go back to the verse and read kind of his legacy, kind of when they recap his reign and his rule as the eight-year-old king. He, he reigned for about 30-something years, said neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his strength in accordance with all the law of Moses. <laughs> to me, the key word here, all throughout the story, the life, the legacy of Josiah, is all. Total obedience. Instant obedience. When God speaks, we listen. And to the ancient Hebrew people, it wasn't just hearing. It was acting on what they heard. So for the last few minutes, I just want to give us a few simple handlebars on how you and I, in our everyday life, can fully obey God and can walk in an obedient lifestyle where we love God with our heart, our soul, and our strength. 
We're going to start off with loving God with our heart. The Hebrew word for heart, I want to teach you some Hebrew words. Turn to your neighbor and say, Lebab. <laughs> this is the Hebrew word for heart. Now, the Hebrew word for heart actually meant your desires. It means that you experience an internal transformation. This is actually the hardest one. This is a, another way you could describe loving God with all of your heart is a renovation of desire. Now, if you watch some of these shows where you're flipping homes or maybe you've ever engaged in flipping a home, you know that you can't get to the renovation process until you're done with the demolition process. So to love God with our heart means we have to take a demolition to the old and embrace the renovation of the new. It means I can no longer want what I've always wanted. That's the process of repentance. That's the process of transformation, a recognition of, man, my instincts as a human are a little bit squirrely. No one ever taught me to lie. No one ever taught me to cheat. It just came natural. I've got a three-year-old, and he's already really good at it. And I don't know who's teaching him these things. Maybe he's learning them from me. I don't know. But we have a bad heart. The Bible says many prophets talked about the fact that the only way people are ever going to be able to love God is if they have a heart renovation, a new heart, and that's what Jesus came to give us. I think that's why this commandment starts with the heart, because when we love God with our soul and our strength, as you're going to see, those are more behavioral modifications, more external things, but loving God with the heart is an inside-out kind of transformation. It means that you want what He wants. The way that we love God with all of our heart means loving Him with everything that you want. Now, this is not an easy thing to wrap our minds around. It means we've got to really do the, the dirty work of realizing that our current desires that are kind of implanted into our sinful human DNA, our current instincts, aren't getting us places. That's the part of repentance where we turn away from sin and we choose to want the things of God. It's an internal transformation. When we love God with all of our heart, it means we're loving Him with everything that we want. This is the most difficult. And if we skip over this process, then we're just doing religious tweaks Christianity, following the Lord, is not about modification. It's about transformation. That's what it means to love God with your heart, to love God with your desires. We start there from the inside out. I want what you want, God. I'm exchanging all of me for all of you, loving God with your heart. He goes on to talk about loving God with your soul. And this is an interesting one. The Hebrew word for soul is nefesh. Look to your neighbor and say nefesh. Hebrew word for soul, meaning nefesh, literally translates to throat. <laughs> so how do I love God with my throat? It's kind of a weird concept, right? God, I love you with all of my throat. So if you have a sore throat, are you incapable of loving God fully? What does this mean? Well, this word throat would, would mean a little bit more than just the biological organ of your throat or your esophagus. It actually had more to do with your entire existence. Your entire identity would be loving God with your soul. They didn't separate the spiritual from the physical. If they saw a living body, they would call that a living nefesh. If they saw a dead body, they would call that a dead nefesh. Your soul is much more connected to your existence than just your, your, your physical body. It's who you are. It's your identity. It's your passport. What it means is when you love God with your nefesh, when you love God with your existence, it means that when people think of you, the stuff you post on social media, the kind of interactions you have, 
your choices of entertainment, it doesn't mean you've got to be this righteous priest all the time. It just means that, that your life is more about God than it is about you. That when you identify with anything, before the brands that you wear, the logos on your t-shirt, that people think of you, they think of God. Loving God with your soul means loving God with everything that you are. So when you throw that shirt on, that, that, that team that you're so proud of, don't feel guilty for that. But just be a little bit more proud of Jesus than you are the Georgia Bulldogs. You know what I'm saying? It means we love God with everything that we are. When people see me, do they see Jesus? Is the life that I'm living putting him on display or other things? It doesn't mean we can't be fans of other things. But let's be followers of Christ fans of everything else. Loving God with our identity, with our purpose, with our existence. It means to love God with our soul. And then finally, we love God with our strength. And this is a pretty interesting Hebrew word. Loving God with our strength means mayod. Say mayod to your neighbor. Now, this is one of the only places in scripture where it's used to create the word strength. Because most of the other places in the Hebrew language that mayod was used was simply an adverb that meant very. Well, an adverb is something that describes an action. So how do I love God with my very, V-E-R-Y? How do I love God with, another word could be much. How do I love God with my muchness, my veryness? What does that mean? Well, what they, what they translated that to, when, when Jesus was asked to summarize this word, he used this word and Mind. He said, love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Kind of synonym, synonyms for one another. What he's saying here is whatever you have at your disposal, whatever you've got discretion over, whatever you have much of is a way that you can love God. Whatever is at your disposal, whatever you have much of, we all have plenty of time. We're all given the same 24 hours, seven days a week. Whatever you have much of, here's what loving God with your muchness looks like. Here's what loving God with your strength means. It means anything that you've got to think over, anything that you may have to sacrificially part with is a way to love God with your strength. You know, some people actually translated it to wealth. And we all know wealth is not just monetary. It's your talents. It's your home. It's your smile. It's your, it's your kindness. Loving God with your strength may simply be when you're at a restaurant and you feel the spirit nudging you to tip a little bit extra. Love God with your muchness. You may think, well, Nathan, I don't have very much money, so what are you talking about? It's all perspective, right? Most of the world looks at us and thinks that we're all really, really wealthy. And if you ever go with a, one of us on our mission trips, it might be a little bit easier for you to part with your resources when you see the rest of the way the rest of the world lives. This is where we really get to sacrificially love God. When he nudges us to tangibly display kindness and sacrifice and generosity. Even if it's being generous with your words and being the only person that encourages somebody. I mean, my wife is amazing at this. Every time we're at Kroger checking out, I'm sitting there trying to get the discount with my Kroger ID card, scanning it, and she stops, talks to the cashier. How are you doing? What's your name? What's going on today? Everybody else just kind of goes through the line and, and, and just treats them like they're just there, like they're basically a machine. But she engages with their humanity. She realizes God's blessed me with time. God's blessed me with words. I'm going to use them to show this person God's love. See, we've all got something at our disposal 
And when we love God with our strength, when we love God with our muchness, when we choose to love God very much, mayod, loving God with our strength, it means loving God with everything that we have. Realizing that the very clothes on your back that you put on today is not even yours. We're just stewards of everything that we experience, everything that we have, everything that we drive, everything that we wear, everything that we think that we have was given to us from God, blessing from us from God in order so that we may be a blessing because when we bless others, we give them a tangible representation of the love of God. And this is the kind of life that King Josiah, who started off as an eight-year-old, lived and modeled for his people and also for us thousands of years later. Now here's, here's, here's the promise that is in store for those who live like this, who love God with everything they've got. One of my life verses is in Psalms 37. It says, when you delight yourself in God's will, you've given the desires of your heart. So I think a lot of times we look at our church attendance, or the amount of money that we place in a giving box, or the mission trips we've gone on, or the bad things that we've stopped doing, and, and sometimes our life isn't changing as quickly as we think we should. It's like, God, I'm being a good person. Why aren't you blessing me? And if that's the extent of our Christianity, we're missing this whole idea of loving God. That's a contract commitment, where I do this and you do that. No, a covenant relationship that is defined by loving God with our heart, soul, mind, our strength means Exactly what we've talked about today. Loving God with all of our desires. Loving God with our existence and our identity. And loving God with everything that we have. When we look at that promise in Psalm 37. It says when we delight in God's will. When we delight in who he is. When we delight in doing things his way. Something happens. Our desires and our definitions of blessing. Start aligning with his. And we start praying prayers that he can't help but to answer. We start living a life that he can't help but to bless. King Josiah, all the years that he was living and leading and ruling and reigning, like this kind of king who loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, things were going well for his country, for his people. If living and loving and leading like this could change an entire country, imagine what it could do in your own house, in this community. Blessing is on the other side of obedience. And if we're only partially obeying God, we're only experiencing a partiality of his blessing. He wants to unleash things on us. He wants to bless us so that we can be a blessing. He wants to change our lives so that our story can help spark life change in someone else. When we love God fully, we ex also experience God fully. And that's his desire, that's his plan, that's his design for us. And that's my prayer for you, MLC. Is that today, moving forward, at the restaurant, at work, at the water cooler, at the gym, dropping your kids off at school, watching them in a game, is that would, everything would be an example to demonstrate a life that is fully devoted to God, but also fully blessed by God. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for this story that challenges us the way it does, that a young man would lead this way, and it would cause great change and great reform in an entire nation. I pray these truths transcend time and speak to us today and that we could learn how to love you with our wants, love you with our existence and our identity, but also with our strength, with our time, with our energy. Help us to live life open-handed and when you nudge us to show your love, 
to follow you into a deeper level of commitment, Lord, that our answer would be yes, knowing that you bless obedience. Thank you in advance for how you're going to lead these people and guide us into a more loving relationship with you, our God, our King, our Lord, our Father. In your name we pray. Amen.